can you imagine what it would be like to live in a world without birdsong? How do the sounds of our natural world affect you? And what can we learn from listening to the changes in our wild soundscapes over time? My guest today, Dr. Bernie Krause, is a world-renowned expert in soundscape ecology, and he is here to delight you and to expand your understanding of the value, meaning, and impact of our soundscapes. Along with him is Kat Krauss, who is his wife and partner in all of these adventures. So welcome to the two of you today. Thank you, Osha. Thank you. This is Aspire with Osha, art, nature, humanity, and I'm your host, Osha Hayden. Musician and naturalist Bernie Krauss is one of the world's leading experts in natural sound. That's a quote by Sir George Martin, who you know as the producer for the Beatles. Since 1968, Bernie Krauss has traveled the world to record, archive, research, and express the voice of the natural world, its soundscape. Dr. Bernie Krauss spent his early career as a recording engineer and backup studio guitarist. He performed with the Weavers at Carnegie Hall in 1963. Bernie and his late music partner, Paul Beaver, introduced the Moog synthesizer to pop music and film. Bernie's work is featured on many albums of that era, including those of George Harrison, Mick Jagger, David Byrne, Brian Eno, Van Morrison, Peter Gabriel, The Birds, and The Doors, not to mention Beaver and Krause's own albums. Bernie's contributions can be heard on over 135 major feature films like Apocalypse Now, Performance Love Story, Castaway, and Rosemary's Baby. In 1981, having earned his doctorate in bioacoustics, Bernie began his second career as a founder of Soundscape Ecology, a new field of study focusing on marine and terrestrial soundscapes. As a sound engineer, Bernie's sound sculptures can be heard at major public venues like the California Academy of Sciences, the Smithsonian, the American Museum of Natural History in New York, and several London venues. He is the author of The Great Animal Orchestra, Finding the Origins of Music in the World's Wild Places, and is co-composer of a symphony commissioned by the BBC, created with Richard Blackford. Together, they've also composed Biophony, the ballet score commissioned by the Alonzo King Lines Ballet. His newest book, and we'll be talking about it today, is The Power of Tranquility in a Very Noisy world. So thank you so much for being here, Bernie and Kat. So you were highly successful, Bernie, as a recording engineer and a studio guitarist. You worked with many famous musicians and you worked on over 135 major films. So what led to your shift to soundscape recording? Well, it, it had nothing to do with guitar. I quit guitar in, in the late 19. 60s and switched to synthesizer you know uh, like you were beginning to say there and uh, most of my studio work was done on synthesizer not on guitar 
Um, the mm. guitar is sort of a footnote in, in my life and my work. But when we introduced the synthesizer, we had an album to do for Warner Brothers. Um, we got a contract with them in, 19, in the late 1960s. And the first album that we were going to do for them was an album called In a Wild Sanctuary. It was the first album ever to use natural sounds as a component of orchestration. It was also the first album uh, on the theme of ecology. It, it just almost went without saying that we had to include natural sounds in that uh, recording. And so we had to go out into the field and record them. Paul wouldn't do that, so he left that job to me. And I marched off into Muir Woods, uh, thinking that it was, you know, the most wild place in the world. Because I grew up in a family that, you know, was terrified of the natural world and animals and, uh, you know, all of the stuff that they imagined that the natural world would, would unfold for us, like dangers and, and disease and all kinds of stuff. So were you, were you raised in a city? Yeah, I was based in San Francisco. So off to the woods I marched uh, and turned on my recorder one October afternoon. And the sound was so gorgeous and so extraordinary and calming for me because I have a terrible case of the ADHD that I just decided right then and there that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I had another 10 years to go on synthesizer. Oh, yeah. In in 1979, I went back. I, I quit music altogether. Uh, I've been working on Apocalypse now, and um, at the end of that film, I just decided I didn't want to do that anymore. And so I went back to school, uh, got my PhD in bioacoustics, and I've been recording in the natural world ever since. Mm, mm. So what what is soundscape ecology for those of us who don't know? It's very simple. It's the sound, It's the study of sound that comes from natural environments, whether they're marine or terrestrial. It's simply that. Your new book, The Power of Tranquility in a Very Noisy World, reveals so much about the power of our sound environment. So what kinds of information do our soundscapes contain? And how does this affect us? The soundscape, first of all, we should probably define the term. Soundscape is all of the mm-hmm. sound that reaches our ears from whatever source. The problem is we don't, we're not really good listeners. We're more graphic culture. So we don't really pay much attention to the sound, the sonic world around us. But what the natural soundscapes, the biophonies of, of the world tell us, they're a narrative of place. Uh, they can tell us many things about the natural world and our relationship to it, like how healthy a habitat is, how it's thriving, um, just by listening to the density and diversity of the wildlife that's uh, there and expressing itself. Because the natural world, those soundscapes, express are, are the voice of that, of, of the living organisms. And uh, collectively, it expresses detail that we're just beginning to unlock right now and understand. But it's a very important field. If you're looking at the life sciences and trying to understand them, you have to understand them also through its voice. Like for instance, when we're not feeling very well, when we're sick, it shows in our voice. It's the same thing with the natural world. If the natural world is under stress, 
from whatever it is that we humans are, are uh, causing, uh, it's going to show in its voice. And we just have to be able to understand what that is and how that how those nuances work. And there are aspects of a soundscape, correct? There's the biophony, but two other aspects, yes? Yeah, there are, there are three sources of sound in, uh, in any soundscape. Uh, the first is the geophony, or the natural sounds that are non-biological, like, like wind or rain, um, movement of the earth, that kind of thing. And they've been around since the earth was formed four and a half billion years ago. So it's the oldest kind of sound on earth. But it, there was nothing to hear it until about 55 million years ago when life uh, started to form. And uh, and there were organisms that were hearing sound. So and those organisms make up the biophony, because they're the ones that are expressing themselves like birds and mammals and amphibians, reptiles, and so on. Um, and the third is the third source of sound is all of the sound that we humans generate. The uh, that I call the anthropophony. Anthropo meaning human and, and phone, P-H-O-N from the Greek meaning sound. And so um, there are really uh, two elements of sound that, that we humans generate. The first are controlled sounds like language and music and theater. And the other is incoherent or chaotic sound that we refer to as noise. So any sound that you know is not important to us, that we're not that has no useful information is noise, the stuff that's distracting. Mm -hmm. But it's not only sound that's distracting, it's also it's also visuals that are distracting, things that we, you know, that come to us on our on our, on our smartphones or uh, you know, through any of the media that we get. I mean, why do we have to have another photograph of somebody's Buddha bowl at a restaurant, you know, on a on a Friday afternoon? I mean, who cares? That's noise. Mm -hmm. And how do we, why do we have to have leaf blowers? <laughs> why me? You're asking the wrong person. Yeah, yeah, leaf blowers that disrupt my uh, sessions that I record from my home. Um, I, I so, so, yeah, Kat, yeah. tell us a little bit about your perspective of this. Like, I mean, I know that you guys lost your home in the 2017 fires, your beautiful home in the Valley of the Moon. So I'm just wondering as you looked for to find a new home did this how how did the soundscape work into that what did you notice about that it's been a four year journey since the fires and of course our hearts go out to everyone that was affected by them uh, certainly i think 70,000 people were affected by the fire that, that took by the fire alone uh, that's a lot of displacement, a lot of uh, diaspora, a lot of ruined habitats, a lot of creatures as well that had to find homes or perish, and many of them did. Um, it's certainly something that uh, was uh, a dire occurrence for us, but it was a dire occurrence for, for all involved. And I think people are still feeling the effects of that. Uh, how did the soundscape change? The... Um, when you ask that, the thing I recall the most is the um, 
absence of the soundscape that we were familiar with, the very comforting, quiet, uh, buffered kind of natural soundscape. We had uh, a nice privacy buffer around our house of some acreage, and it afforded uh, a place where where animals could come through. And uh, so it was very natural, very nice. And certainly for the first couple of years, we hardly, I don't know what the aural equivalent would be of looking up. We hardly picked up our ears enough to be able to, to perceive what that soundscape change had been like. But when we tried to fi finally settle down into a space, then it was really a matter of going, oh, our habitat has changed drastically. And there are indeed leaf blowers or air conditioners or uh, people, if you will, traffic. Um, and so we set about looking for a quieter place. I think that finding a home, an environment that is quiet is becoming more and more difficult to do. I was driving the other day and I noticed like at the corner of Dutton and Third, there was this big um, new uh, dwelling, like a multiple story apartment or condo complex that was right there. It was between Third Avenue and, and, and the highway, Highway 12. And I thought, Oh yeah. my God, what would it would be like to live in a place like that with noise coming from every direction, plus the fumes from the gas. So I guess they just assume you're never going to open a window. Anyway, so I think a lot of affordable housing is placed in these uh, acoustic environments that are fairly intolerable to most people. Um, certainly, you can talk about what you've learned about the effects of noise on people. Well, all you all you need to do is uh, watch mm -hmm. the news. I mean, any cable, I, I don't care what cable news program it is, the, the screen is filled with images of noise, distracting one thing and the other. So you really don't get detail because your eye is moving around and looking at other stuff. Your ear hears all the noise. It's just yap, yap, yap. It's like Greta Thunberg was saying the other day, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's continuous. Right. It's continuous. And it, it distracts us from what's really important, from the life-affirming uh, sounds that are all around us, from these living organisms, from the birds, from the mammals, from the insects, and so on. And... Uh, what it makes for is uh, a culture that's dysfunctional and a culture that's dystopic and uh, and really suffering right now because of all of these other noise distractions that keep us from the things that are really important. So we'll talk more about um, your new book and the effects of the soundscape and what you've learned uh, in a few moments, we'll take a short break now, and we'll be right back. So stay tuned for more with Bernie and Kat Krause.
case you're just joining us, this is Aspire with Osha, Art, Nature, Humanity, and I'm your host, Osha Hayden, and I'm here today with Bernie Krause and his wife and partner, Kat Krause. We are talking about soundscapes and the importance of that, the birdsong in our lives or the lack thereof. Your new book, The Power of Tranquility in a Very Noisy World, reveals so much about the power of our sound environment. What kinds of information does it, our soundscapes contain? How does it affect us? And what can we, what can we do about it? It depends on the soundscape. Again, mm-hmm. the soundscape is, has three components to it. It has two components that are natural sound and, and one which is human-caused sound. Uh, some people call it technophonic, meaning that most of the sound is generated from our technology. And it's random. Uh, what can we do about it? Well, you were saying earlier in the in our discussion, uh, uh, you mentioned something about the birds that are missing. Well, birds are only one component of the living world around us. Uh, and for sure, uh, things are happening with birds because they're a signature species. In 1970, there were 3 billion more birds than there are now, according to the Guardian, uh, an article on the Guardian earlier this summer. So 3 billion birds have been lost since 1970. But that's not the problem. The problem that I'm finding is that whole habitats are gone. I have an, I have, uh, uh, an archive that's 5,000 hours and that is represented by maybe 1,200 habitats, different kinds of habitats, marine habitats, terrestrial, tropical, Arctic, and so on, all, all around the world. And better than 50% of my archive comes from habitats that no longer exist in my lifetime. I've been recording mm-hmm. since 1968, mm. and uh, which is just over 50 years. And in 50 years, over 50% of my habitat, the habitats I have in my collection, you can no longer go back and hear them. They're dead silent or they're so radically altered that they that the natural sounds can no longer be heard. That tells you a lot about what's happening in our world. Volumes of information. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. But... but uh, where do we begin? Who do we begin with? I mean, where is the hope? The hope is in people like Greta Thunberg and her message and 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 the energies that she's devoting uh, to this kind of issue, these kinds of issues. Um, the hope doesn't lie with us. I'm eighty. I'm in my mid eighties now, um, and uh, you know we're we've 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 done all the damage we could do. So uh, you know what more can we contribute? I'd say, you know, okay enough. Um, uh, but we really have to put our our, our hope and the, our direction. It's not only hope. I mean, we have to transform that into action. And, you know, like I say in my new book, it, it's, it's probably not what we do that matters. Mm-hmm. It's what mm-hmm. we don't do that matters. And in this way, I think it's important to remark that you know, we are all uh, a Greta Thunberg or a Jane Goodall, a Bernie Krause, uh, people who 
are able to amplify a message to say, you know, these these habitats are calling out to us if we only care to listen. Just like all of us have experienced kind of in a, in a new way than any of us have ever experienced before, a collective despair or anxiety or lack of tranquility, perhaps due to COVID and due to the kind of stresses that that's put on all of us. But the but natural world... COVID, COVID is environmental. I mean, it, yeah. direct, it has a direct link to what's going on in the environment. To that point, the, the stresses that we feel are magnified by what the natural world has been feeling for decades our actions have been putting the natural world under the kind of stress that that most of us are only really now beginning to experience and understand. And that stress on the natural world is causing loss of voice, loss of vitality, loss of presence, loss of life, uh, a general dishealth. And that's the thing that that I think now is got has got to be part of the message that gets shared with others so that when we collaborate to support it, that that in itself is life-affirming, it's joyful, it's exuberant. Yeah, mm-hmm. in contrast to what's happening now, which is not only dysfunctional, but it's also pathological. Look at all the anger around us. What that shows is a direct disconnection to mm-hmm. the natural world components that are helpful to us. And that uh, what I talk about in the new book, particularly about the tranquility end of things, that if we want tranquility, we've got to we've got to shut the hell up and pay some attention and just listen to what's going on in the rest of the living world because we're connected to that. And without those links, Without those links, we end up with despair. Mm-hmm. I know as I was preparing for this interview today, um, and I had some stressors in my life right now that I've been dealing with, I walked outside into my backyard, and I just stood in the sun and felt the sun on my face, and what yeah. did I hear? Bird song. Yeah. Beautiful bird song from the trees around me. And it took me less than five minutes to shift my state completely yeah. from where I, how I showed up when I first got to that point, that point in space to when I left. Yeah. So it, it's very, very powerful. And we do know that we're all connected here. We're but one of the species on this planet. And it is up to us, though, the ones who have destroyed so much, to begin to make the repairs and to begin to recognize how the connection that we have to the entire world, to everything in the world, is the very foundation of our existence. Yep. So... Uh, you have so much to, to, I think, inform us about through the recordings that you have, and they're available on your website. At wildsanctuary.com. Yes, wildsanctuary.com. And if people want to hear, if they want to get away 
and just move into that space of peacefulness for a little while, they can turn off the TV, turn off the computer, turn off the cell phone, and listen to some of these soundscapes. And there's also music, there's symphonies that are a combination of music and natural soundscapes. Um, there's so much to find there. So wildsanctuary.com, really, you should check it out. Right now, at this moment in time, we've all been hearing about the disruption in our supply chains and the fact that there are all these shipping containers that are stuck out in the ports and everything is blocked. It's taking a very long time. If you want any kind of gifts to give to your kids or other people for uh, Christmas, you better get them now um, because you may not be able to get anything and they may already be sold out. So I want to bring people's attention to, again, uh, what might be found on your website in terms of Christmas gifts. Uh, Bernie, several years ago, did a wonderful album, all created from animal sounds, all created from biological sounds, called A Wild Christmas, which, of course, sounds like music, but unlike something unlike a novelty album like the barking dogs barking out a, a, a jingle or something. Um, this actually is orchestrated and it's a lot of fun, hip uh, uh, renditions of, of some favorite uh, holiday music. And it's a lot of fun, a wild Christmas. And it was and done with uh, Phil Auberg, a colleague of mine uh, who studied music at Harvard. Right. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but otherwise we also, uh, recommend you know sticking cloves into an orange to make a pomander for for someone or or having just a a gentle evening where gifts don't have to be part of it as much of, as the gift of our communicating with one another in a calm even and loving way to um, say what are the gifts of our lives what can we do or and with each other to make our lives equally as inspiring and energetic as what we think we're finding online all the time, like a rat in a maze or something. Can we, can we begin to uphold the idea of our humanity and how we are connected to? And I think those kind of events, those kind of uh, uh, having a presence with each other is uh, also a way of, of getting together again to celebrate a holiday or even just a, an evening, um, in a gentler way, in a non-commercial way, that uh, may be a key to helping us go forward. Because the danger, of course, of where we are is there's so much other distraction. People begin to lose track of, well, why should we listen to nature? Why should we stop all these kinetic
Nicely said. Okay. I also wanted to mention another thing that you have on your website, which is Wild Times at the Waterhole. Ah, and yes. that's for kids, right? Sure. And I thought, oh, wouldn't those things be wonderful for Christmas? I think so. Up till about seven or eight years old, that's a particular, particularly nicely done piece. It's done with um, the lead singer on that is a fellow by the name of Bob Duro. And uh, Bob was a very famous jazz musician, known mostly by by other jazz musicians of the 1950s and 60s. And he was a good friend of mine and joined us on this album, not only as a writer, uh, but also as a uh, as a musician playing keyboards and uh, and sampling the animals and uh, and singing. So uh, we had a good time with that. And Bob is is a very special guy, and he has a very special voice, which you'll hear on that album. the The music is really pretty. It's it's uh, it's touching. Well, I also wanted to mention the the um, the great animal orchestra. Oh yeah which is something else you can find on the website. Are you talking about the symphony now? Well, it's the audiobook. Oh, the audiobook, sure. Well, talk about the symphony. I can talk about all of it. Well, I invite you to. <laughs> <laughs> You're invited to talk about it all. <laughs> well, the symphony, when, when we uh, did the book, the book was translated into seven or eight languages. And uh, one of the people had picked it up because there was an edition that was specifically for the UK. One of the people that picked it up was uh, a composer who was the composer in residence at Oxford uh, for a long time. And he happened to pick up the book and read it and said, you know, why don't we do a symphony with that? I can get a commission. He got a commission from the BBC Symphony and, uh, and Richard... Uh, did the actual writing of the symphony. I, I contributed to the natural soundscapes that we used as, um, as part of that. And um, with a 70-piece um, BBC National Orchestra of Wales, uh, we gave the premiere of that in 2014 at a place called Cheltenham. Uh, Cheltenham is the UK equivalent of Tanglewood. Um, mm. So that so if you're familiar with Tanglewood, you know what Cheltenham is, and uh, it was it was premiered there. It's been performed uh, in the U.S. It's performed with youth with youth orchestras uh, all over the U.K., Germany, and so it's gotten quite a few uh, performances since. And it's really a charming uh, piece of work. And that's available on wildsanctuary.com. Well, we need to go to a short break right now, and we'll be back in just a little while with more from Bernie Krauss and Kat Krauss talking about soundscapes. And just a reminder, you can also find all of my podcasts at oshahayden.com, that's O-S-H-A-H-A-Y-D-E-N.com, or on your favorite podcast app. Stay tuned, we'll be right back. In case you're just joining us, this is Aspire with Osha, 
Art, Nature, Humanity, and I'm your host, Osha Hayden. I'm here with Bernie Krause and Kat Krause. We are talking about natural soundscapes. How do the animals teach us to dance and sing? Because we're mimics. Yes. And when we lived closely connected to the natural world, we got our rhythm from watching uh, great apes pound out, you know, these elaborate rhythms on the buttresses of fig trees that would carry for miles into the forest and to see reaction of other animals. So we figured if we can get reaction like that, why don't we learn to do that ourselves? And we did. So that's how we learned rhythm. We learned melody from birdsong. We learned uh, duetting from watching gibbons duet and listening to them duet early in the morning and at, at dawn. Um, and we learned how all of the animals, uh, by, by listening to the animals organize their sounds, because if they're going to be heard, they better find bandwidth that's unimpeded by other animals so that their voices can be heard. So we learned right. structure of sound by listening to them. And when, I mean, if you take a look at, at the costumes from Native Americans, you can tell how we learned to dance like a deer because of the mm -hmm. or how we learned to dance like bears because of the bear costume or swim like whales and so on. Sure, I mean, um, uh, how we behaved like uh, ravens. And so ravens are a big deal in the North American Northwest. So all of these things, yeah. were, I mean, we did, we did nothing except mimic what we saw in the natural world. So we're not terrific. You know, I, <laughs> I wouldn't talk about our exceptionalism too much. But it leads to an, it leads to an important place, which is also perhaps uh, where we got our spirituality. Because, oh, no question. Yeah. Because, you know, we listen to these sounds out in the forest, in the dark, and had no real explanation for, you know, where are they coming from? Who's making that? And so in in kin, in in a hearth situation, stories get told or or something gets ascribed to have meaning um, that is often not clear to us. And then myths grow up around that, and then we express them, certainly also trying to give luck to the hunt when you go out to to get animals and there were there were sort of mm, scenarios that would take place between the hunter and the hunted that we would reenact uh so it all ties in i i was very impressed one time and i was at the san diego zoo and there was a huge exhibit of a kind of monkey i'm trying to remember what kind it was but they they gave they gave a concert and it was oh, yeah. like it was like jazz it was so amazing i was just i was just transfixed because you would hear one and then another one would riff off of that and the next one would riff off of that and they were just together creating this totally improvised beautiful probably gibbons probably, probably gibbons. gibbons yeah and and it was it was phenomenal it was music yeah it was definitely music. You should hear that. You should hear what it sounds like in the wild. Ah, yeah, and not in a zoo mm -hmm. behind bars. I mean, these guys, these guys and gals, really go after it. And one of your sound, you have a sound recording, don't you, on your website where we could hear that? 
Mm-hmm. Which one? It's called Rainstorm in Borneo. Rainstorm in Borneo. Or Sumatra Days, Sumatra Nights. Yeah. So you, you've you been all over the world. I've been a few places, yeah. Mm-hmm. Not all over. I mean, there's some places I haven't been. Like, uh, you know, Asia. I haven't spent very much time in China or Russia. Mm-hmm. I'd like to. But you've been traipsing through jungles and climbing oh, yeah. mountains and uh, yeah. probably tumbling down a few slopes here and there to, <laughs> <laughs> to, to get all these, to be able to record all of these natural sound environments yeah. so that they're now available for us to, to listen to and enjoy. You've been doing this recording, this work for over 45 years. So what have you learned from listening to the changes in our soundscapes over that period of time? Well, I've learned many things, but one of the, one of the things that I've learned is, is that uh, we're changing these habitats radically. And they're under great stress mm-hmm. because when birds don't sing in 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 these uh, established bandwidths, they're fighting for acoustic space. And when things drop out, when one element changes, it changes the whole uh, the whole spectrum of events that occurs in that habitat. And it takes it a long while to readjust again. And so, a lot of the places that we're mm-hmm. going back to are stressed now. And they show that by the competition that's going on for vocal for vocal territory. Uh, the other thing that I've noticed is that for myself, it's really harder to get the habitats that are healthy that express themselves in these in, in these niches, uh, where the niches are very well defined. And when I go back there. Um, because the habitat is stressed, it has an effect on me. That stressed sound makes me feel bad mm. and not as uh, not as healthy as I want to feel when I go into a habitat now and then, and and uh, you know to heal a little bit and to refresh, you know, my sense of life. Uh, so a lot of that is mm-hmm. going now, and I, I miss that sound. A recording is not the same thing as being there in the environment where you feel the, the, the air on your skin and you smell the smells of the forest mm-hmm. floor and and um, and hear everything and all your senses are alive because you're in this environment. It doesn't happen with a recording. A recording mm-hmm. trans it transforms the idea into something more mechanical. It can mm-hmm. still have an effect on on you. I mean, I, I love to come down to the studio and listen to things, you know, every now and then, because it makes me feel good. But mm-hmm. it, basically, for me, it's just transforming me back into that place where I recorded it before. So I have an image in my mind, I have a sense in my mind of what that was all about. It's you know, each time you mm-hmm. remove an element, or, or, or a time or, or a space uh, from it, it has less and less an effect. So you need to have these environments that are healthy and that support you. Um, and, the full yeah. sensory. So where we can engage all yeah. of our senses and we're not being distracted yeah. and disrupted by noise or just yeah. flying over. Or... Yeah. I mean, the other side of that is, 
we live in a culture that that is very strange right now and it it, it started about the 1980s there was this i love this line that this guy gave because it expresses everything you know that we're talking about and it's very american there was this guy by the name of james watt and james watt was the secretary of the interior in the early 1980s under ronald reagan and uh, one of the first things that he did was to defund the office of noise abatement Mm. that had been established by nixon to actually you know, take a look at the noise that was occurring in the in in uh, the United States, and really help um, cities and and states address the noise issue because they understood that it was a it was a problem. Well, um, uh, Watt defunded the the Office of Noise Abatement so that it was it had no operational power anymore. When he was asked why, he said something very interesting. He said, "Well." He said, noise is power. And the more and the noisier we are as a culture, the more powerful we appear to be to others. Oh, well. Isn't that a isn't that a great American statement? I'm gonna say I mean, it's it, greatly misguided. <laughs> oh, no kidding. But I'm talking <laughs> yeah. about I'm talking about in terms of in terms of the American psyche right now, you yeah. know, and all the stuff that's going on. I find that to be an extraordinary piece of literature. Yeah. I mean, it really is uh, telling about us. And kind of really the opposite of what gives us power because, and I'm sure you mentioned this in your book, um, that quiet, being able to move into a place of quiet and tranquility brings us into a place where we're centered within ourselves and where we actually have full access to our our human power. Yeah. Whereas the distractions of all of these noise chip away, they just sort chips away at our uh well-being. And absolutely. Yeah. If you don't know so the difference between sound and noise, if you haven't mm-hmm. um contemplated it, if you haven't tried listening, if you haven't tried uh, separating out what you perceive as sound or what you perceive as noise in in order to help you make distinctions about it, then you're you're unfortunately even unaware of how much noise might be encroaching upon you, upon your life, upon your well-being, your tranquility, to be able to control it, to be able to make choices about it, to be able to have the freedom to choose, I would rather be in a quiet room right now, or I'm ready for some company, let the party begin. You know, you you can control that in much the same way that you can control the volume on your stereo or anything else. Tune it up when you need to. Tune it down when you want to. Um, you have to be able to make the distinctions. And one of the things that careful mm-hmm. listening is able to provide, one of the gifts of it, is that it helps you make the distinction. I think if there was one thing really that I could give children in particular, it would be be to be able to make the distinctions between sound and noise and how both of those things affect how they feel so that make those choices. Mm-hmm. So in a, in a time when we woke up to birdsong and we went to sleep with crickets, you know, sounding, 
um, those kind of gentler times can be somewhat restored if only people will remember why that they're why they're important and be able to say, okay, enough with the noise, we're nice and quiet time. What we can work toward is is restoring. Because we are, we're the ones who destroyed it, really. Uh, we can blame everybody else. You know, our governments are this or that. We can blame everybody else. But basically, we're here now. And it's up to all of us to, to begin to restore these natural environments. Yes? Have to have the will. And the collective, the collective will to make that happen. And to get people on the same page these days is really not easy. Well, I wanted to point out to uh, my listeners you that you have a TED Talk. Yeah. I really highly recommend that you all listen to that TED Talk because you also talk about uh, an area that you went to, like a meadow, and then you went back later and you recorded the soundscape and you show the recording and people can hear it and see it and how after the selective logging the bird song, the signature of the bird song was completely changed. One element, one element of that environment was changed. They took out a couple of trees mm-hmm. and that changed the whole soundscape because uh, the animals that lived there uh, had their habitat destroyed. You know, it wasn't what it should have been. And so they conveyed that to us through their sound, through their voice. And you make a point in your talk that if you look at that meadow, it looks the same. It yeah. doesn't look different, yeah. but it sure sounds different. No, and and the logging company said because it looks the same, nothing has changed. Right. So this is the kind of information that we need to have to be able to say yes. We can show, we can prove that this environment sounded like this, the next year like this, the next year like this, 10 years later like this. And that shows the effect that we humans are having. If anyone is saying, oh, humans aren't responsible for climate change, I would point them to the information yeah. that we're talking about here. Amen. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Bernie and Kat. Um, it's such a pleasure. Thank you, Osha. Thank you, for, thank you for your work. Thank you, Osha. You can also listen to all of my podcasts on oshahayden.com. And thank you for listening. You're the reason that I do this work. Um, and until next time, have an inspired week and live your joy.